Well, Lord Jesus, bless this time. Bless the teaching of your word. We pray that you would speak into our hearts. This is just, it's a remarkable, supernatural thing that, that we ask you to do, that we believe that you do, and that we trust you to do. And so teach us now. And fill us up again with your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. We're going to be in Luke 24, so you can turn there. But Revelation 12, 5 tells us that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You don't even have to leave that verse to figure out who the child is and who the mother is. The child is obviously Jesus, and the mother is Israel. But right there we hear, she, Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up. And yes, the word there is harpazo. Her child was raptured. Caught up to God and to His throne. I love that verse. Jesus was raptured. Jesus was, if you don't like the word raptured, you know, it's no big deal. It's just Latin. If you don't like Latin, don't speak Latin. Speak Greek. Jesus was harpazoed. <laughs> you don't like the Greek? Speak English. Jesus was caught up. However you say it, that's what happened. And I was thinking about, literally that verse hit me as I was getting ready to go out the door. I had to call Les and say, go to prayer because i got more study to do. It hit me that Jesus in His ascension was caught up. As we will be caught up. Now in his catching up, I I don't think it was uh, so much in the twinkling of an eye as ours will be. And we know this because if you read the end of Luke, you read the beginning of Acts, they, they had some time to watch him. They gazed upon him as he went until he was hidden by the clouds. They they watched him go. I was out front with Naomi and David just a couple of days ago, blowing bubbles. And you know you're watching to see how high they'll go. You know, and and Naomi keeps shouting, To infinity and beyond! You know? (laughs) Jesus was no bubble. But the, the principle, you know, the idea, I was standing there with Him, looking up and going, I wonder what it was like to watch Jesus ascend. Well, we're going to get there. But He was caught up. What we need to understand as we begin, though, is Jesus had to die. Why? Because the Scriptures said that He would. But as much as he had to die, according to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, thousands of years of prophecy declared he had to die, but he also had to rise. And not only did he have to rise from the dead, he would have to rise from the earth. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists and has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And we do know. His name is Jesus. Who else has done that? That is descended and ascended. But Jesus Christ alone. He is the child. He is the Word made flesh. He is the God-man who would both rise from the dead and be caught up into the heavens, not in the twinkling of an eye, but I think with a twinkle in his eye. As he looked back, as everything was accomplished. You know that feeling of going home? When you just 
you really want to be home. You're looking forward to being home. See, we forget about that aspect of Jesus that in His ascension, all the work was done. And He was going back to the Father. He was going home. What a marvelous thing. And we'll get there. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's step back. Because we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday. We did the first 12 verses of Luke 24. We're going to pick up in verse 13. I remind you, on the morning of His resurrection, Mary Magdalene saw Him first. The women, though the rest of them hadn't actually seen Him, they had seen the empty tomb, they had seen the angels, and they were overjoyed, we're told. The apostles were incredulous. Come on. That's nonsense, they thought. Except John. John who believed. He may not have said anything, but he believed. And Peter who marveled. And for all of that, the day was just getting started. Verse 13, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. It would be seven miles to the west. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. And by the way, that's how it works. He says where two or three are gathered together in My name, I'm there, in their midst. We have two disciples walking along the road and talking about Jesus. And when two disciples walk along and talk together about Jesus, He wants to get in on it. He likes that. Matthew 18.19, the verse prior to that says, If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by My Father who is in heaven. These two were in agreement. Problem was, they weren't asking for anything. At least at first, they completely missed His immediate presence. They did not know it was Him. And I was thinking today, we can do that same thing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can walk together. We can talk about Jesus and forget His immediate presence. We can share in Bible study together. We can even open up the Word together and forget that He is there. That He is among us. And I want to encourage you, as I myself have been encouraged, invite Him into the conversation. Don't just talk about Jesus. Talk with Jesus. I think I shared before, maybe a few years ago, but but Cheryl went to her first real Bible study. I won't tell you what church she was raised in because that, that might put a negative spin on it. But by the time she got into high school, she went with a friend to another church. And it was the first time she ever felt like Jesus was there. And to this day, she'll say, I remember vividly walking in the room, sitting down, listening to them pray, and going, they pray as if He's right here. (laughs) And that's the key. Two or three gathered together in His name, He's here. Don't forget that. Welcome Him into the discussion, into the fellowship, on our journeys. Walk with Him. For verse 16 now goes on and says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him. Why? Well, a lot of different surmise about this. Some say that they were heading to Emmaus, which was west. Sun's going down. It's bright in their eyes. So perhaps they just couldn't see Him. No. (laughs) I think it was a supernatural concealment. Uh, To be honest, I just don't think it was time. Jesus wasn't ready for them to see Him because they weren't ready to see Him. He had a little work to do. 
And so he comes up, and and, and his his physical appearance, his uh, recognizability, if you will, is concealed, obscured. They can't really see it. Now, there are others who suppose maybe Jesus was so disfigured from the beatings and the trials that he was unrecognizable. I'm seeing a lot of you shake your heads. You know, I, I think maybe several years ago I might have disagreed with you. I might have said, yeah, that's possible. But turning your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 15. I think you head shakers are right this time. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. And by the way, you might just want to mark dog ear 1 Corinthians 15 we're going to go back there a couple of times tonight but this is a critical chapter in all of Paul's writings if you want to understand resurrection he really gets into it here it's a great chapter it's deep in doctrinal soundness and great theology verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15 but someone will say how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come ever ask that question what am I going to be like how am I going to look? Will I be recognizable? Am I stuck with this? You know, I mean, all the questions that go with it. Skip down to verse 40. He says, there, is also, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for a star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I like that. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What does that mean? It means that when we finally are resurrected into our glorified bodies, whether it's raptured straight off the ground or out of the grave, when we are resurrected into glorified bodies, all the mileage of the earthly body will be gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, wow. (laughs) Hair, strong knees, no more pain, no more waking up in the morning and going, that's what my dad used to do, man. (laughs) But when we think about this, and we can get excited about this, our heavenly bodies. And by the way, everybody wants one. Don't kid yourselves. Don't look around you and go, well, yeah, but his is all right or hers is better than mine. Uh uh. They all, we all look at ourselves and go, could do better. You know? The question that this raises is as much as we know and we accept what the Bible says that we're going to have glorified bodies, no pain, absolute strength, power like we've never known before. Jesus is the example of that, by the way, the example of a resurrected body. And pay close attention to that as we go through Luke 24, if eventually we do. Pay close attention to the fact that Jesus in His resurrected body can walk through walls. Yeah. (laughs) And He eats fish. And He says, touch me. There is something absolutely 
physically tangible as much as spiritually powerful in the resurrected body of Jesus. We'll get more to that in a second, but I want you to understand something. The question that comes up immediately when we think about this is if we are all going to be in these magnificent, glorified, resurrected bodies like Jesus, didn't Jesus still have scars? So if Jesus still had scars, will I still have scars? And I don't think so. Well, so why then does Jesus have scars? Hold that thought. We've got to come back to it. We need a little more teaching tonight. Verse 17. So they can't recognize Him. Their, their eyes are prevented from it. Again, I think supernaturally. I think they just weren't ready yet. And He said to them, verse 17, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? As if He didn't know. And they stood still, note this, looking sad. Looking sad. One of them named Cleopas, probably not, by the way, the same guy as Mary's husband, Mary, the wife of Clopas. There's Clopas and Cleopas, probably not the same guy. But this Cleopas answered him and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And I love what Jesus says to them. What things? <laughs> it's just beautiful. Huh? What? Tell me about it. What are these things? Some people read that and they think Jesus has got to just be having a bit of fun. You know? And who would blame him after what he had been through? And finally getting to the point where he could say, It is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last, and it's done. And now he's resurrected, and I would be having some fun. I guarantee it. But I think there's more than just joyfulness going on in Jesus here. Jesus, listen, Jesus is always focused on faith. For all of His joy, and for the fun that we get even out of reading this section of Scripture, He is focused on faith. Why is He doing what He's doing with these two men on the road to Emmaus? And the answer is faith. He wants them to believe. He wants them to process and get to the point where they believe in the Christ, in Himself, which they don't even know it's Him yet. And that's part of why they don't know it's Him yet, is He's drawing them into a faith position so that they can see Him, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. They can understand what's going on. He works and prays to that end in every single one of our lives. When we wonder why God isn't saying anything to us, why there's absolute silence, it's because He's developing faith. And when we wonder why He won't stop talking to us and telling us to do things, it's because He's working out faith. Everything, mark this, in your hearts, every single thing God does in your life is for the purpose of deepening your faith. The easy stuff? Yeah. The hard stuff? Yeah. The joyful things, the sorrowful things, it is all about faith. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, and that's exactly what's happening on the road to Emmaus. They are now, these two blessed individuals, are being taught of God. They're being taught of God by God. They're getting schooled in their own faith. 
Verse 19, continuing on, Jesus just said, What things? And they said to Him, the things about Jesus, the, the Nazarene, who, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to the sentence of death and crucified Him. I mean, what things? These two day trippers on the Emmaus excursion now recount high hopes related to Jesus of Nazareth. Very disappointed. These guys, remember, verse 17 said they were sad. They were just sad. And they had such high hopes, but their hopes had been dashed by the crucifixion. They saw in Jesus a great prophet, mighty in word and deed. Some do today. That's all they see in Jesus, just a great prophet. Islam considers Jesus to be a great prophet. The Baha'i faith, oh, he's, he's one of the great prophets, absolutely. Certain cults jump right in there and say, yeah, great prophets. But understand that hope in a great prophet, hope in a great rabbi will always disappoint if that's all you're hoping in. I think about Moses who struck out on his rock. You know? Samuel who fell out of his chair. Elijah who hid out in a cave. I had more of them, but I think that's probably enough. You get the point. That there's not a single prophet in the history of Israel that didn't at some point goof it up. What about Daniel? We don't read about him goofing it up. Yeah, that's because he wrote his own book. Jesus, in addition to the fact that all prophets disappoint, all teachers disappoint, all pastors disappoint, that's what we do because we're all human. Jesus doesn't leave us a profit margin. (laughs) Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That is not the language of a prophet. That is a language of a God, the only God who can save you. He said in John 8.28, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. The Greek is ego eimi. The Hebrew is Yahweh. I am. Jesus was so much more than a prophet, but they're disappointed because they thought He was a great prophet and they didn't yet see beyond that. Verse 21, continuing, they said, but we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. So, not only a great prophet, but we thought the Messiah. The great Messiah. And in Jesus' day, Messiah figures were all the rage. There had been many. Prior to Jesus, there would be many after Jesus. Listen to this, John, uh, Acts chapter 5, I'll just read it to you. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were in trouble again. They've been brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was calling for their heads. They wanted them done with and taken care of. And we're told that a very wise man stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law. This is Acts 5.34. Respected by all the people, he stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up 
claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, I just got a question for you. Are there any Theudians here tonight? Followers of Theudas. Are there any followers of the legendary Judas of Galilee? Any Judas of Galileanity people here? If I, if I said to you, before we even looked in the book of Acts, if I said to you, tell me about Theudas, how many could? Most people, unless you had read and studied it and knew where we were going with this, would go, who? Sounds like he got a lisp. Really? (laughs) And the reality is that the pattern, the profile, for all the would-be messiahs in Jesus' day and since then has always been the same. It starts with claims. I am... I am the Messiah. Yes, it's me, or someone else claims it about them. Secondly, they gather their cohorts. Thirdly, there are casualties. Fourthly, there's the crypt. (laughs) That's where they end up. And finally, curtains for the movement. And it's the same pattern over and over and over and over, even 135 A.D., After all these things, later, one of the last great Messiah figures of Israel, Shimon Bar Kokhba, rose up. His name was actually Shimon Bar Kosiba, but Rabbi Akiva renamed him, said, no, no, it's it's Bar Kokhba. Why? Because Bar Kokhba means son of the star. Numbers 24, 17. Remember Balaam's prophecy? I see a star, but in the distance. A star coming out of Judah. And so Rabbi Akiva said, oh... It's, it's, it's Shimon, it's this guy. And a bunch of people followed him and there was a great uprising against Antiochus Epiphanes. No, I'm sorry, that was way before. Totally wrong on that. Delete that. There was a great uprising against Rome and the emperor Hadrian. Where is Shimon Bar Kokhba and his whole following today? They were wiped out. They were destroyed. We thought He was the Messiah. We thought He was a Redeemer. And here we are 2,000 years later and we know He was. We know Jesus came as Israel's Messiah. And you got to explain why. Why now has Christianity covered the face of the earth and is still the largest faith on earth and is still the fastest growing, though you know the media would try and tell you otherwise? It's not true. It is fastest growing. It is still spreading across the planet. It may look a little weak in America. we got our job cut out for us here. But it is moving, and it always has. Why? How can you explain this? Because after Jesus was executed, without any uprising, without any military strategy or effort on His part or on the part of His followers, Christianity continued to spread like wildfire. And it's one of the most compelling arguments of the resurrection. The spread of Christianity. 
because had Jesus died, had He come up with the claims and the cohorts and the casualties and gone into the crypt, the whole thing would have been curtains for Christianity. But that's not what happened. And you know that's not what happened. Suddenly, these people who had followed Him in life began to claim they were still following Him in life. They began to claim He was alive. They gave up their lives for this claim. They all became martyrs. One of the most compelling arguments of the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes from the witnesses of that resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. Paul is gutsy. He just puts it right out there. Your faith is vain. Bogus. Waste of time. If Jesus wasn't resurrected. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If we had hoped in this life... If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Poor, pathetic Christians following a Messiah who's dead. How sad. But, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.20, now Christ has been raised from the dead. And when you get that, it alters you. When you believe Finally, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changes your heart. It changes your life, and you suddenly join a great cloud of witnesses. I wasn't there. I didn't see Him that that day. I wasn't present in those 40 days after the fact. You don't have to be. You have seen Him with eyes of faith, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes you. It changes lives forever. That's why Paul includes that in Romans 10 as part of the confession of faith. You know, believe in your heart. Christ raised from the dead. You gotta, you gotta call out the resurrection. Because it's the resurrection of Jesus that changes you, and these two didn't yet get the resurrection. They'd heard rumors, but right now their faith is as empty as the tomb. They don't get it yet. Continuing on. Indeed, they say, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find His body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but Him they did not see. But verse 17 tells us they were sad. Now think about this. These two men walking to Emmaus had now heard the testimony of the empty tomb and the angels had no doubt heard that Mary had seen Him and they're still sad. The the witnesses have been talking, have told them what they've seen, but they're still sad. Why? Because they did not realize yet the reality of the resurrection. They're still in the place of disappointment. Gang, this is huge in our lives. As long as resurrection remains a vague and mystical thing, so does hope. If the resurrection is vague in your life, hope is vague in your life. If the resurrection is something that's just a possibility, then hope is just a possibility and it's going to disappoint you. But see, hope in Christ, Paul tells us, does not disappoint. Why? Because the resurrection is true. Because it really happened. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. And what the one, the one thing that God did that, that man, it just breathes hope into our lives is resurrection. His resurrection, which means my resurrection. And there's my hope. But without that hope, without the knowledge of the faith in the resurrection, life is a hopeless thing. It really is. We could begin to share stories one after the other of difficulties we've had in our lives. Things we're facing right now. Hardships. Disease we've had to deal with. Family problems. Heartaches and heartbreaks. And very quickly we could be on the road to Emmaus and sad. By the way, part of the problem with the road to Emmaus is they're heading the wrong direction. They need to be back to Jerusalem. They'll figure that out. Their hearts are empty right now. Empty and sad. Verse 25. Jesus says to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And I wonder if at this point, Cleopas and friend are starting to go, Wait a minute, you know something more than you're telling us. What do you mean what things have been going on? Oh, foolish men and slow of heart. Boy, if you just read that and skip on by it, you might think, that was a little harsh. I mean, you know, they're walking along and he says, you idiots! Doom cops! How can you be missing this? It's not what he's saying. The Greek for oh, foolish men is not an invective. You know, in, in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, don't call your brother a fool. Well, that's the word moros. <laughs> and it's a word I confess I'm far too comfortable with in the car. <laughs> Bunch of morosses. <laughs> no, the word he uses here is anoitos. And anoitos means, oh, men without understanding. He doesn't say, you idiots. He says, you guys really don't get it, do you? You don't understand. You're lacking understanding. And the understanding they lacked, it was not informational or educational. It was spiritual. Because he also calls them slow of heart. Slow of heart. Bradyscardia. In the Greek... Thank you, Dr. Luke, for sharing another medical condition. This is yet another one that he, that he uses. Bradycardia. It is a medical condition. We have this condition. It is on the books in medicine today. And it's what happens when your heart starts to beat at below 40 beats a minute. Now, at 60, 65, that's athletic, that's a good heartbeat, but you start to get down in the low 50s, and man, you're really laid back. <laughs> you get down in the 40s, and it's dangerous. You drop below 40, bradycardia. It causes fatigue, it brings about weakness, there's dizziness, fainting. You have no energy whatsoever. I experienced it. I actually can tell you I know exactly what bradycardia feels like. Several years ago, five years ago or so now, a flu attacked my heart. 
Did it two years in a row, which is bizarre. It's like lightning striking twice. And I ended up that, that second time with a dangerously low blood pressure. And I'll never forget it. I, I tried to get up out of bed and the whole room spun. And I felt nauseous. And I went down on the carpet and, and I, I called Cheryl and I just said, I, I, I could hardly even talk. I was just absolutely exhausted. And I was confused. And that's what bradycardia does. Dangerously low blood pressure. And Jesus says, O foolish men, men without understanding, slow of heart. You guys are in a dangerous place here because your hearts are just not beating fast enough. You're not thinking with faith. He calls them foolish men, slow of heart to believe, note this, all that the prophets have spoken. With gentle, loving correction, Jesus looks at these two and in essence says, you guys should have seen this coming. You're sad, you shouldn't be. You're puzzled. Why? Isn't this what the prophets have said would happen about the Christ? Don't you understand? I I thought, you know, I never ever want to hear that from Jesus. Rick, you should have seen me coming. I want to be ready to see Him coming. Eyes wide open. Even if I'm jumping the gun. You know, even if I'm walking along and I think it's that moment and I jump just to get a a head head start (laughs) on the rapture and I come back down, okay, well, at least I'm ready. Right? Verse 27. Then listen. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. What is he doing? It's as if Jesus is going, Clear! He's electrifying their heart with the Word of God. He, Man, he takes hold of their dullness, of their lack of understanding, and he goes back to the beginning. I'm convinced. I don't know how much he actually said. How far did he go? What did he cover? I know Psalm 40, verse 7, he, he once said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. This thing is all about me. And so I wonder, did he teach them of the seed of woman that would bruise the heel of the serpent? Genesis 3.15. Did he talk about Melchizedek, king of peace, king of righteousness? Genesis 14. Did he, did he speak about the blessing of Abraham? Genesis 12, or the sacrifice of Isaac and compared with the Messiah, Genesis 22. Did he talk about the wrestler who wrestled Jacob all night long in Genesis 32, or the lion of Judah, or the scepter of Shiloh, Genesis 49? Did he speak about the voice at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, or of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, or of the sacrifices of Israel, all pointing to Messiah in Leviticus 1 through 5, and Leviticus 17 talking about the blood? Did he point to the star of Jacob, Numbers 24-17? Or of the prophet who would come along greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18? Did he share about the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua chapter 5? Or of Ruth's kinsman redeemer? Or of the son of David who came before David? Or of Job's redeemer? Or the good shepherd's death, Psalm 22? The great shepherd's care over our lives, Psalm 23? Or the chief shepherd's soon return, Psalm 24? Did he share the wisdom of Solomon? Did he talk about the chief shepherds? Oh, I already did that one. The beloved. Did he talk about the beloved in the Song of Songs? Of Isaiah's Emmanuel, Isaiah chapter 7, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. 
the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the Spirit of the Lord that would be upon Messiah, Isaiah 61. Did he talk about Jeremiah's righteous branch, Jeremiah 23? Ezekiel's prince at the eastern gate, Ezekiel 43. Daniel's rock not cut with human hands, or the fourth man in the furnace, or the Messiah cut off before Jerusalem's tragic fall, Daniel chapter 9. Did he talk about Joel's judge, Zephaniah's prince on the donkey, Zachariah's pierced one who will set foot on the Mount of Olives, or of Malachi's refiner's fire? And if anyone asks me to give you that list, I will say you're holding it in your hands. We have it. And all you got to do is read it. It is here. That was a cursory glance, gang. I can't even imagine. There was so much Jesus in all of the Scriptures. He could have gone anywhere and shown them Himself. I was talking with my brother this morning. We have breakfast often on on Wednesday mornings when we can meet. And we were just talking about, uh, really about the last decade and about going through the Bible. And he he was asking me where we're at right now and, and all that. And, and he said, he said, what what is the wherewithal? You know, what is it that, that kind of keeps you going, book after book like this? And I said, it's Jesus. When I got that, and I don't even think I really understood when we first started in Genesis. I started to see that long about well, Genesis chapter three. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, that's talking about Jesus. Genesis fourteen, hey, that's talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden, it started to click. And I said, Ron, my brother, I said, the one principle that stands out for me in Bible study more than anything else is Jesus on every page. He's right there. He took them through this book. And when He was done, man, their hearts were electrified. Cleared! The Word of God. But they're not done yet. He goes on to apply a greater defib. Verse 28, they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Again, is Jesus playing around here? He's going to keep walking. See what they do. You know, there's a principle here, gang. Jesus will never stay unless invited to stay. Jesus is not the uninvited house guest. He's not the annoying visitor who just never leaves. He never wears out his welcome. He stays only as long as you want him to. And then he's out of your hair. Unless you ask him to stay longer. He's not playing games. He is exacting faith. He is drawing out faith in these men. Verse 30. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. I love this story. Resurrection. I'm going to do that. I am. I can just imagine being there with my son Hayden, and I'll, and I'll, I'll take a can of Dr. Pepper and go, and he'll go, Dad! And I'll be gone. I I love this. Jesus, they finally recognize Him, and He's gone. And what's the deal here, Lord? I mean, you just disappear on Him. 
Well, first of all, understand that fellowship with Jesus does charge up the heart. It charges up the heart. Their eyes are open. They recognize Him. He vanishes from their sight. There's something going on here. Breaking bread with the Lord. Breaking bread with the Lord. Now, Luke 24 could make for a really cool communion meditation on a Sunday morning. Problem is, I don't think they were sharing communion here. I've actually heard people try to apply this, say, well, it was communion. And when they saw that they were having communion, they realized it was Jesus. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because communion, the last Passover, had just been instituted three days before and these two guys weren't even there. He was just breaking bread. He was blessing the bread in the traditional Jewish way, lifting it up and and breaking it before them. And there was just something about that. Some have said, well, maybe... Maybe because it was bread, they, they looked at him and they were thinking about you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and how he lifted up that bread and broke it. And, and, and everybody, you know, there's something unique about the way Jesus breaks bread. Now, I think everything about Jesus is wonderful and unique, but I'm just not sure that breaking bread is that, you know. Oh, oh that's Jesus. Nobody breaks bread like he does. <laughs> no, it's he. But after hearing... The bread of the Word taught what they needed. Listen, what they needed was fellowship with the bread of life. They needed fellowship with Him. And that's what's happening. They're now in fellowship with Him. John 6.48, I am the bread of life. And the bottom line is that Jesus doesn't reveal Himself to them until they are ready to really see Him. During all of his teaching, when he goes back and talks about Messiah through the Hebrew Scriptures, you know he had to be talking in the third person. He's talking about himself, but he doesn't tell them it's me. He doesn't say, well, and then I came along and broke up bread, brought out bread and wine to give to Abraham. That was kind of a cool day. Boy, can I tell you about being in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That wasn't cool. That was a little warm, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> Hanging out with them. being together. He didn't say it like that. He couldn't have. Don't you understand the Messiah is personified in Melchizedek? Don't you understand the Messiah is the suffering servant, was the suffering servant talked about by Isaiah, talking about himself, but always in the third person, until they are ready, and here they're ready. Why? When they finally get it, why does he vanish from their sight? Wouldn't you think that would be the time for high fives? It really is you. Yeah, up here. You know? What does he do? He disappears. Why? He's focused on faith. 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 And the second their faith came, he didn't want them to see him anymore. They didn't need to see him anymore. He just went as far as they needed and he was gone. He'll do the same thing in your life and the same thing in mine. He'll show you just as much as you absolutely need. And if your faith goes, boop, he's out of there. I'm not talking about that He withdraws His presence, the presence of His Spirit. I'm saying He will only be as visible as absolutely necessary. Because in this life, it is about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11.6 He who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. 1 John 5.4 Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So He's out of there. He disappears. 
verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Now, the Mormons will come along and will ask you to read their stuff and pray and look for a burning in the bosom. That's a, that's a big phrase with the Mormons, a burning in the bosom. And I like to immediately point out, well, first of all, we really don't use the word bosom so much anymore, so I would <laughs> change that. <laughs> I've looked at the Book of Mormon. And it gave me heartburn, but not a burning in the bosom. Our friends from Emmaus here, when they and they point to the, by the way, the Mormons point to this passage and go, see, see, see the burning right here, burning in the heart. No, no, it's not what they're talking about. They weren't like, oh, wow, that hurt. They're talking about passion. They're talking about just. Everything that he's saying is making sense. Things are starting to click into place. And the Word is bringing about faith. And they're excited. And they're passionate. And they're falling in love all over again with this Messiah. And the revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through the Scriptures, the Word of Christ, will give you a heart that burns with fiery passion. Nothing will ignite the heart like understanding Jesus in the Word of God. And that's what was going on there. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. See, that's the other aspect of this is once your heart gets ignited by the Lord, once He has brought out that divine defibrillator and gives you the shock of the Word of God, the shock of your life that brings you to life, then suddenly your heart starts pumping and you can't hold it in. You can't just go home from Bible study and go, well, that was a good one. (laughs) Finish Luke tonight. Someone says, hey, what did you do last night? (laughs) Nope. Bible study, I think. (laughs) Burning! You can't hold it in. Verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. So now they're making another seven miles back to Jerusalem. And it's probably, if not early evening, if not dark, it's early evening. So they've now made a 14-mile round trip, seven miles out, seven miles back to Jerusalem. Why are they on their feet? Why are they going back to Jerusalem? Because when you realize that Jesus has resurrected from the dead, you want to go back and be with those who know about it. And you want to do it as soon as you possibly can. So they head back and they found gathered the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Shimon, Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how He was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. They're telling the whole tale, sharing the whole thing. And I love that Jesus waited until that moment to open their eyes at the breaking of bread. And again, it wasn't a Passover thing. It wasn't a Lord's Supper, a communion thing. Maybe it was his hands. Because in the Jewish blessing, he would lift up the bread and break it and begin to hand it to them and they would see the nail scars. Maybe that was the final, you know, the final cap 
you got to wonder, and we don't know this, this is only surmise, but you got to wonder, as they're walking along the road and he's opening up the Scriptures and opening up their hearts to understand the Scriptures, which is something he does for us, they're starting to realize, this guy's a great prophet. <laughs> this man from nowhere is sounding like a Messiah. This guy knows his stuff, but he's speaking as one with authority. This guy... And in that moment when they see the nail prints, perhaps that was the thing that drove it right off the cliff. And they realized they were in the presence of Jesus as He lifted up the bread in a blessing. But did you catch what else Luke just told us? Before Jesus appeared to the rest of the apostles that evening, He had already appeared to Peter. Simon Peter. That's amazing. Luke's the only one who specifically mentions this, and it's so on the side. I mean, it's so second person. It's it's through the guys from Emmaus. Yes, he has appeared to Simon. They bring this thing up. Now, Mark 16, Luke's the only Gospel who mentions this. Mark 16, verse 7 says, Go, the angels tell the ladies, Go, tell his disciples and Peter. Make sure Peter knows, because we know he's bummed right now. Go tell the disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. We know later that the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15 again, wrote the following. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And Paul writes, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And we hear nothing about this meeting anywhere in all of Scripture. How interesting. We hear about Mary Magdalene. John recounts that beautifully. But we don't hear about Peter at all. Not even in the Gospel of Mark, which you would think because Mark is likely based on Peter's preaching. And it's not even mentioned there. Why not? I think that meeting was just for Peter. And I just mention it to show you how intimate and personal and kind-hearted Jesus is. And no one else needs to know. We may never know. Maybe one of those things where we're in heaven and go, Hey, Peter, tell me about that meeting. He's like, no, 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 that's, that's mine. That is me and the Lord. And by the way, it is okay to have some moments in your life that are between you and Jesus that you don't tell anybody about. That's okay. Husbands and wives, I hope you have that in your marriages. Some things that just the two of you know and you don't tell everybody about. And in your relationship with Jesus, how sweet it is to have something that is between you and the Lord that you've never told anybody because it's just for the two of you. And I believe that's the way it is here for Peter. Verse 36. While they were telling these things, so now the men are back, puffing and huffing and out of breath and excited and saying, we've seen him, and now you know we're in good company with, with Simon, with Mary Magdalene. They're sharing this and suddenly he himself stood in their midst. And it wasn't, hey guys, open the door, come on. No, he's there. Just appears in their midst and he says to them, peace be to you. In the Greek, the word peace is erene. It is the Greek equivalent, of course, to the Hebrew shalom. But when Jesus said that, peace be to you, 
Okay? From this point and forevermore, the depth of the meaning of shalom will now always surpass all comprehension. Before the resurrection, peace was a good word. It was a desired word. It was a thing that people longed for, hoped for. Even on that, on that night of His betrayal when Jesus talked about peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I don't give to you the way the world gives to you. You know, it's different. It's a different kind of peace. And I imagine that night, I would have at least been with the, the apostles going, I don't, I don't get it. How is your peace different? I don't understand. When Jesus stood among them in their midst and said, Peace, it's different. And it is different for you and it is different for me. Because our Lord resurrected. Because our Lord beat death. He, he made death a toothless thing. He overcame the grave. Tell me, what could we possibly fear or dread that He can't deal with? What in your life is too much for Jesus? He beat death. And He promises you now peace. Shalom. Verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. It's a ghost. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See My hands and my feet, that it is I myself, obviously pointing out the nail scars and hands and feet. Look, touch me, he says, and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And you can see them gathering near him. And Touching his shoulder, it is. I mean, he's not ethereal. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Now think about this. Four people are there right now among them, even before Jesus showed up. Mary Mag, Peter, the two travelers, plus John and the women all testifying to the empty tomb and the four actually having seen Jesus that day just recently. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Himself is standing before their very eyes and they still don't believe it. Why not? Maybe they thought that this was not actually Jesus but His guardian angel. Well, where do you get that? The Jewish people believed, absolutely. And well, they should because the Hebrew Scriptures teach it. That there are guardian angels. You know, the angels who, who came, it was actually the Lord, came to visit Abraham, right? Angels mentioned throughout Scripture, and, and so the Jewish people have no. In fact, Acts chapter 12, remember the story of Peter thrown into prison? And the believers are over at the house, and they're all praying, they're deep in prayer vigil, and, and an angel comes and crashes Peter out and, and leads him through the streets, and then leaves him there at the door of the believer's house, and he's knocking on the door. And I've told the story before. Rhoda answers the door and goes, ah! And closes the door and runs back, you know, to the rest of the group. It's Peter! It's Peter! It's Peter! And they're like, you're crazy, it's not Peter. No, it really is! And she's so persistent. Finally, somebody says in Acts 12, verse 15, it must be his angel. And they're dead serious. 
God must have sent Peter's angel to tell us something about Peter. Because they can't believe that it's actually Peter standing there, not realizing that an angel busted him out. So maybe the apostles and, and those gathered around thought this Jesus standing before them was actually an angelic apparition and not Jesus in the flesh. But there's a bigger reason why they couldn't they couldn't see it as actually being Him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And the faith hadn't caught up with the sight yet. They could see Jesus. People say all the time, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. He could walk in here tonight, walk up to the front, sit down, pick up my guitar, and start leading worship. And if you don't have faith, you'd go, that's not Him. That can't be Him. There's no way that's really Jesus. Gang, the eyes are deceptive. The eyes see what they want to see. Faith is required. And you may ask again, well, if if faith is required and the eyes are deceptive, why does Jesus show them His scars? If it's all about faith, why does He show them the scars? Well, for one thing, He knows the heart. And He knows in this instance, the apostles, those gathered in the room, they need a little kickstart. Their faith needs a little something, kind of like the guys after the Emmaus road trip. They're in the, in the room together. He breaks bread to kickstart their faith. Give them just enough. And you might even say, wow, I wouldn't mind a little kickstart every now and then for my faith. Well, don't forget what He later says to Thomas, because you have seen Me and have believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Why won't you show me something, Lord? Because if I do, you will not be as blessed as if I don't and you believe me anyway. It's always better to believe without seeing. But there's something bigger here as to why he showed them the scars. Why he ate the broiled fish. The King James adds honeycomb. I like that. I don't know why it's not in the New American Standard Bible. It really should be. Fish and honeycomb. It sounds good to me. He eats... He says, touch me. He shows them the scars. He does all these physical, tangible things in His resurrected body. Why? This is something absolutely foundational to faith that God knows needs to be clearly revealed in this moment. Full bodily resurrection. Now, I pointed this out briefly on Sunday morning. Full bodily resurrection. What Jesus is doing when He shows them the scars, when He eats the fish, when He says, touch me and see that spirits are not flesh and bone like like I have. Check this out. Why is He doing that? Spirits don't have scars. Ghosts are not flesh and bone. Specters don't swallow boiled tilapia. It would go right through them. I'm going to need a plate. (laughs) And perhaps a doggy bag. It just doesn't work. This was not a heavenly hologram. This was Jesus in the flesh and proof of the divine theology of full bodily resurrection. And you've got to understand that. This is so important to our faith. Jesus was not a spectral image. Acts chapter 10, verse 40. Peter, talking to Cornelius and company, says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, he says, to those of us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. 
physical, bodily resurrection. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, we read this Sunday. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with the blood. Now, speaking again, that He came in the physical body, but listen to what John says after that. He says, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. What do you mean, John? I mean, Spirit, water, and blood. That's Jesus resurrected. Full, actual, physical, tangible, bodily resurrection. Okay, Rick, why is this so important? I get it, but why does that matter so much? It reveals two things. It reveals, number one, that Jesus is fully and eternally the God-man. There has never been anybody like Jesus, nor will there ever be anybody like Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, for all eternity. He's the only one. It also reveals our resurrection. His full bodily resurrection reveals your full bodily resurrection. We do not vaporize into death. We don't become floating specters or phantoms. We will be more real than we are right now. And if you want a great picture of that, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and look at how he describes heaven when they take this fantastic bus ride up to heaven. And they get out of the bus, and I know I've shared this, he gets out and starts to walk on the grass, and he looks down, and he's horrified because the grass in heaven is going right up through his feet, and he realizes in his human body he's kind of a ghost. And what C.S. Lewis is pointing out is, man, in our glorified bodies, we are going to be more real than we are right now. More dense, like that grass going right through the guy's feet, because the guy was just in his plain old pre-glorified, just human body. You try to walk on the heavenly grass, (laughs) it's going to go through you. Because we're so... You want to talk about ethereal? That's us right now. You want to talk about not fully what we were created to be, what we're going to be, that's where we're at. We're not quite there yet. In our glorified... We don't go backwards and all of a sudden become empty. We, we are fuller. And I can't explain that anymore other than just to say full bodily resurrection, we're going to be more real. Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 15.42 again. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. So Jesus, although raised, did still have tangible scars? Yes, He did. And I think He always will. I don't think I will. But He will. Revelation 5.6, John said, I saw between the throne, the four living creatures, or with the four living creatures, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. John sees Jesus and recognizes the scars. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, our heavenly bodies are glorified and perfect, so why does Jesus still have scars? Hold that thought just a little longer. We'll come back to it. Verse 44, Now He said to them, 
These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the third time we've heard this now in this teaching tonight. Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it's all going to be fulfilled. There's nothing that will not be or could not be or would not be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And that's what Jesus does. He opens our minds to understand the Scriptures. But He doesn't really do it until we come to faith. When you give your lives to Jesus, when you hand your heart over to His Lordship, the Scriptures begin to unfold in ways that they never did before. Because He opens our minds to understand the Scriptures. The Beatles were wrong. We can't work it out. I'm sorry Paul we can't work it out I don't work it out I don't figure it out I don't understand the scriptures because I've studied so hard and worked so hard and and, and looked for possible combinations of things no he reveals it Jesus reveals it he opens our minds he says here let me show you something that's why I had to call less tonight did I say that earlier? Yes. Yeah. Well, the less can you do prayer because I'm getting revelation. I need a few more minutes. Why now, Lord? You know. <laughs> he reveals it. Job thirty three sixteen. That enigmatic character Elihu is speaking to Job, and he says, "God opens the ears of men and seals their instruction." Right on. He teaches us. He brings it. Now, if you keep your Bible shut all the time, it's going to be a little more difficult. Open it up and say, Lord, be my teacher. Holy Spirit, show me what you want me to know. Help me understand your word. Now, we don't get to hear all that he said that night as he opened up their minds to receive this instruction. Luke just gives us basically the gospel in a nutshell. Verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in, in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, He says. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promises of my, or the fa- promise of My Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until... Wait for it. Until... Hold on. You are clothed with power from on high. Do you recognize the Great Commission there? This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Matthew wrote about in Matthew 28. Mark shared in Mark 16. Luke will share again something of this in Acts chapter 1. John has his version of the commission as well. This is something I think Jesus probably repeated over and over for the next 40 days of final preparation. The Bible tells us He hung around for 40 days. He stayed there. He kept showing up and doing some teaching and then He'd be gone and they'd have to deal with their faith. They'd have to process what had just happened. What did we hear? But He stuck around and did this for 40 days. 10 days beyond that, the preparation was married with the power that He promised. Preparation and power for what? To be my, he says it, witnesses. You are, verse 48, witnesses. You are witnesses. You are witnesses. The Greek word is martus. It's where we get our word martyr. To be a martyr 
is to be killed because you believe in Jesus. And I, I shared with you recently that the, the number of Christian martyrs in the last decade is astounding. The tens of millions. In our time, more in our time than in the first 300 years of the church around the world. And I wonder, Jesus said, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my martyrs, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Ever wonder if you were called upon to be a martyr for the Lord, if you'd have the guts to do it? Someone holds the gun to your head and says, Renounce Jesus or die. That's your choice. You ever wondered? Now some of us would go, Pull! <laughs> I don't know if I would be one of those. I I, I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. That would be terrifying. And I asked the Lord about it. Lord, if I was ever called upon, really? To be a martyr? To die for my faith? Would I... You know, what would rush through my mind? My wife, my kids, i got to take care of them? Our our church family? I mean, what do I... Or would I just say, I will never renounce Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me tell you something. I don't think any martyr ever has the guts to be a martyr. I think everybody who has ever lost their life for the cause of Jesus Christ or in the name of Jesus Christ, they had the power when they needed it. Jesus gave it to them when they needed it. At the moment. And and that's the deal for us. You know, we don't, we don't sit around and go, what if things go really bad in America and we're called upon to die for Jesus? Don't worry about that. You live for Jesus. And as you live for Jesus, should that day ever come, and it may not, it, there, there are Christians throughout the last 2,000 years who have not had to be martyred for their faith. They, they died in peace. I don't know. But you live for Jesus now, and should that day come, He will give you the power you need when you need it. We never function on our own power. We will not make it if we try to function on our own power. He said, I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper, that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive Him because it does not see Him or know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And we have His Spirit with us right now. Verse 51. And he led them out as far as Bethany. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, Jesus takes them out as far as Bethany. And, and as he ascends from the Mount of Olives, he's there between Bethany, his most favorite place in the world, home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Gethsemane, the place where he suffered so greatly. So he leads them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. As they watched him go, think about what they saw. He blessed them. He lifts up his hands in a blessing. His hands in a blessing. Why does Jesus still have the scars? As he lifts up his hands in a blessing, He lifts up the eternal witness of the blessing of His sacrifice. The eternal witness. Why does Jesus have the scars? Because 10 trillion years into eternity, you can look at His hands and recall grace. I believe that's why the scars remain. I believe that's why Jesus, of all resurrected people, 
maintains the scars from his death as a testimony, as a witness through all eternity of the grace of God in the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm going to read you something. Spurgeon actually quotes this from a guy named F.B. Pullman. And he writes, The wonderful hand of Christ. That wonderful hand of Christ. It was that same hand which had been so quickly stretched out to rescue Peter when sinking in Galilee's waves. It was that same hand which had been held in the sight of the questioning disciples on the third evening after they had seen it laid lifeless in the tomb. It was that same hand which incredulous Thomas must see before he would believe its risen power. It was that same hand which was extended to him not only to see, but to touch the nail prints in its palm. It was that same hand which the disciples last saw uplifted in a parting blessing when the cloud parted him from them. It was only ten days after that they realized the fullness of the blessing which came from that extended, pierced hand of Christ. Peter at Pentecost must have preached with that last sight of it fresh in his memory when he said, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That hand with its nail prints, knocks at the heart's door for entrance. That hand, with its deep marks of love, beckons on the weary runner in the heavenly way. That wonderful hand of Christ. And they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And Luke takes us back where he started. Luke chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Zacharias is praying in the temple. And here in Luke 24, 53, the disciples are continuing in the temple. I love the symmetry of Luke's writing. What are they doing in the temple? They're waiting for the power to come, and boy, did it come. Wow, did it come. Ten days later, they're waiting in the temple. It came as they waited. It came as they worshipped. It came as they were continually in the temple praising God. And by the way, people say, well, weren't they in a house? I think the house was the temple. And we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Acts. That the house was the temple. They were in the temple where they were continually, Luke said, praising God, worshiping, talking about Jesus in the temple. Then the power came, the Spirit was poured out. And may we, in these temples, may we be continually praising God in the temples of our bodies where His Spirit resides until the wonderful hand of Christ receives us. Amen? Father, bless this teaching. Seal it now to our hearts. We love You, Lord. We praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.